I, 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 just, I sound so much better on paper than in real life. Um, okay, so um, thank you all for coming. I appreciate it. Uh, it's been a couple of years since I've given a, a talk here. I want to start with an apology. I didn't realize that this was such an interdisciplinary group. Um, this is a fairly legal talk. It's a fairly dense legal talk. Uh, I think the upside is it deals with at least some of the bigger issues in international criminal law, issues that, that don't tend to be explored. I, I find the field a little doctrinal and a little pedantic most of the time. Uh, so hopefully, you know, if it is dense and philosophic and, and boring in that regard, at least some of the ideas will intrigue you, and I, I'm sure that we will have a chance to discuss them afterward. So without further ado, I suppose, I'm going to try to talk for only about 40 minutes and give us plenty of time for discussion afterward. So we can start by just looking at the title, what is an international crime? And the question posed by the title really has two different aspects. I mean, first it asks us to identify what are the international crimes? What qualifies, what acts qualify as international crimes? But second, and I think more fundamentally, it also asks us to identify what is distinctive about an international crime. What separates an international crime from a transnational crime, or from an ordinary domestic crime. And the reason I wrote the very long paper on which this presentation was based is that I found that there was almost complete agreement on both of those issues. In terms of the first issue, well, we all know what the international crimes are. They're war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide, and aggression. There's even a surprising amount of agreement about the definitive characteristic of an international crime. Surprising amount of agreement, I think. And that's that almost all scholars agree that the defining characteristic of an international crime is that it's an act that is universally criminal under international law. An international crime is an act that is universally criminal under international law. And so the international law aspect of this definition is what distinguishes an international crime from an ordinary domestic crime. There are certain ordinary domestic crimes that are universally criminal, murder, for example, but the criminality of murder doesn't depend on international law. It depends on essentially every state in the world independently deciding to criminalize the act of murder. And then in turn, the universality aspect of the definition is what distinguishes an international crime from a transnational crime. Although a transnational crime, say drug trafficking, uh, is criminal under international law, it's defined as criminal by a suppression convention, international law doesn't deem that transnational crime universal, doesn't deem that act universally criminal, as I'm sure you all know. Suppression conventions, treaties, only bind the states that ratify them, and so if a state chooses not to ratify a suppression convention, that act is certainly not criminal when committed on the territory of that state. So an international crime is not the same as either a transnational crime or an ordinary crime, and this is, I think, really the unquestioned, if not particularly often articulated, fundamental understanding that international criminal law scholars have. Now, this definition of an international crime raises a very obvious question. How exactly does international law deem certain acts to be universally criminal? And there are really, I think, two possible answers. <laughs> To that question. And they're the ones I want to focus on today. The first is what I call the direct, sorry, the, 
I had the slide, I wrote my slide wrong. The direct criminalization thesis, or the DCT, which I will hopefully not say because that will become immediately confusing. The first is that certain acts are universally criminal because they are directly criminalized by international law itself, regardless or irrespective of domestic criminalization. And if you've looked at any international criminal law textbook written in the past 20 years, you will find somewhere in the introduction the statement that international crimes are acts that are directly criminalized by international law itself, irrespective of domestic criminalization. And I would struggle to find even one modern international criminal law scholar who disagrees with the direct criminalization thesis. I think I'm probably the only one. The second answer, then, is what I call the national criminalization thesis. The national criminalization thesis rejects the idea that international law is capable of bypassing domestic law and directly criminalizing certain acts. According to this thesis, according to the national criminalization thesis, certain acts are universally criminal and thus qualify as true international crimes because every state in the world is domestically obligated to criminalize that act. Again, no modern international criminal law scholar defends this position, except me. Although, I will say, and I don't have time to really discuss it today, there is actually a fairly long pedigree of at least versions of the national criminalization thesis. You can actually trace it all the way back to Grotius, and you can find a number of scholars who adopt this kind of perspective in the 1950s and the 1960s, particularly George Schwarzenberger, who is, I think, one of the great underrated public international lawyers. Now, the article that this presentation is based on claims that if we want to adopt a positivist approach to international law, and every international tribunal, including the Nuremberg Tribunal, has insisted that we are good positivists, if we want to adopt a positivist approach, we have to adopt the national criminalization theory thesis. That it, it provides the only coherent explanation of how international law can deem certain acts to be universally criminal. Now, I don't have time to lay out my entire argument. Trust me, you would really, really not want me to stand up here and lay out my entire, ar entire argument. Instead, what I want to do is challenge the idea, again defended by almost all scholars, that the existence of international tribunals with jurisdiction over international crimes somehow proves the existence of the direct criminalization of certain acts by international law. Again, I reject that argument. As I will try to explain, in my view, only one type of international tribunal could possibly, even in theory, support direct criminalization, and that's one that's based on universal jurisdiction. And as I will also discuss in this presentation, the problem for the direct criminalization thesis is that universal jurisdiction itself depends on national criminalization obligations. It is not a consequence of certain acts being directly criminalized by international law. But that's a, that's a thesis statement. I will unpack that over the next oh, half hour or so. Okay, so before we get to the argument itself, I want to say a few words about the basic assumption that my article makes and that underlies this presentation. And again, that there are certain acts that international law deems to be universally criminal. Acts that are criminal and prosecutable no matter where they are committed in the world. Now, there's obviously a normative aspect to this assumption. Uh, it simply seems, at least to me, ethically questionable that international crimes could be criminal in some states, but not in others. So as Marty Koskinyemi has written, quote, 
it is inherently difficult to accept the notion that states are legally bound not to engage in genocide only if they have ratified and not formally denounced the 1948 Genocide Convention. So it just seems wrong that international crimes could be criminal in some places and not others. But there's also a very strong positivist base for the idea that international crimes are acts that are universally criminal. Very strong positive foundation. Um, the most obvious example is the existence of universal jurisdiction itself. There are more than 150 states in the world that make universal jurisdiction available for at least one international crime. And by definition, universal jurisdiction affirms the universal illegality of the international crimes because they give every state the right to prosecute those acts no matter where in the world they are committed. It's a direct expression of this idea of universal criminality. But just kind of as a historical aside, the universality of international crimes has also been a regular feature of the jurisprudence of international tribunals. So the Nuremberg Military Tribunals, uh, one of the most famous statements, I think, in the history of international criminal law is the NMT's insistence in a hostage case that, quote, an international crime is an act universally recognized <coughs> as criminal. And I will be mentioning Einsatzgruppen later, which, of course, is the case that was prosecuted by Don, who's sitting in the back's father. Um, if you think about the Special Tribunal for Lebanon, I'm not going to insult your intelligence. I know you're all capable of reading. Probably wouldn't have gotten to Oxford if you didn't. Um, Special Tribunal for Lebanon has also affirmed this idea that international crimes are universally criminal. And then the ICTY has probably made the most bold claim actually saying that the reason that international crimes are universally criminal is they're all essentially Euskogen's norms. And I talk a lot about Euskogen's norms in my article. I'm not going to bore you with that aspect of my argument today. So I think my friend Rob Cryer is on very firm ground when he claims that, quote, the universal applicability of international criminal law is now a commonplace assumption. But again, this view necessarily assumes that international law is capable of deeming certain acts to be universally criminal. And the question is, how does that happen? How do certain acts become universally criminal under international law? Now, the almost never questioned assumption, or the never, sorry, the almost never questioned answer is this direct criminalization thesis. Again, the idea that an international crime is an act that is directly criminalized by international law itself irrespective of domestic criminalization. International law applies to all states equally. So if the international criminality of certain acts is independent of and cannot be limited by domestic law, well, acts that are directly criminalized by international law are indeed universally criminal. It is a coherent explanation of universality, and I'm not saying that it's an incoherent one. It's also, I think, a very seductive idea, this idea of direct criminalization. It would be really nice to believe that if one or 10 or even 196 states in the world considered, say, genocide to be legal, that it would still be criminal under international law. We like the idea of the supremacy of international law. We like the idea that international law can deem certain things criminal, even if states are, shall we say, more ambivalent about them. The problem, and I discussed this a couple of years ago when I was at Oxford, is that there is simply no positivist basis for direct criminalization. There simply is no positivist basis for direct criminalization. Um, I go through four potential sources of evidence for direct criminalization in my article. I talk about multilateral treaties, the domestic incorporation of international crimes, 
General Assembly resolutions, statements by the International Law Commission. And what I try to show in the article is that not only do those sources not support the idea of direct criminalization, they actually support my thesis of national criminalization as being the key to universality. And I'm, again, not going to go through all of that, but let me just give you one kind of striking example, and that's genocide. Genocide is considered, of course, the paradigmatic international crime, the worst of all the international crimes these days. And yet if you look at the two main sources of the prohibition against genocide, neither of them have any support whatsoever for the idea that genocide is directly criminalized by international law. If you look at Article 5 of the Genocide Convention, it makes clear that the Genocide Convention is a suppression convention. It imposes obligations on states to domestically criminalize genocide. There is absolutely nothing in the text of the Genocide Convention that suggests genocide is directly criminalized by international law. And similarly, UN Gen the General Assembly Resolution 96-1, probably, again, one of the more famous resolutions of the General Assembly, it also encourages the creation of a suppression convention. It doesn't affirm direct criminalization. It affirms that it is going to be up to states to criminalize and thus prevent genocide. Now, again, I'm not going to go through the whole critique of all of those sources of evidence or potential sources of evidence for the direct criminalization thesis. What I want to focus on is what is definitely the most promising and, again, kind of the most seductive response to my critique, which is that it is the existence of international tribunals, international tribunals that prosecute international crimes, that provides the relevant state practice and opinio juris necessary to establish this idea of direct criminalization. Now, I could cite you a dozen or so scholars who emphasize the connection between international crimes and international tribunals. I'm not going to again bore you with that. I do, however, kind of want to give you one particularly indicative example of this argument, and it's Sima and Paulus's explanation of how we can believe war crimes are directly criminalized by international law. And they start with a couple of open acknowledgments. They openly acknowledge that the Geneva Conventions don't help establish direct criminalization, because the Geneva Conventions only deem the great breaches to be war crimes, and instead of affirming the direct criminalization of the great breaches, they impose an obligation on states that ratify the conventions to domestically criminalize the great breaches. So the Geneva Conventions are suppression conventions, and they openly acknowledge that. They also openly acknowledge that one looks in vain for state practice that would indicate that war crimes are directly criminalized by international law. But they insist that war crimes should still be considered international crimes, by which they mean acts that are directly criminalized by international law itself, because states have created international tribunals with jurisdiction to prosecute them. And here is their statement, and again, I will let you read it instead of reading it to you. This argument has, I think, the virtue of clarity. How do we know that certain acts are directly criminalized by international law? Well, because states have created international tribunals that have jurisdiction to prosecute them, making domestic criminalization unnecessary. Again, it's a very clear and straightforward argument. The problem with the argument is it simply doesn't work. To begin with, it is an argument that is significantly overbroad. The argument cannot be that any crime that is prosecuted by an international tribunal is directly criminalized by international law, because states can create international tribunals to prosecute pretty much whatever the hell they want. 
Think about the Special Tribunal for Lebanon. The Special Tribunal for Lebanon is an international tribunal, but it doesn't have jurisdiction over even one international crime. It only has jurisdiction over domestic Lebanese crimes. So the simple fact that a crime is within the jurisdiction of an international tribunal certainly doesn't tell us by itself that that act is an international crime. So how might we distinguish between internationally prosecuted crimes that are directly criminalized by international law and internationally, internationally prosecuted crimes that are not? Well, the only plausible answer, I think, is supplied by the universality criterion. So, an international crime is an act that an international tribunal can prosecute no matter where in the world it is committed, even if that crime is committed in a state that considers it to be completely legal. An ordinary crime is then an act that an international tribunal can prosecute only when committed on the territory of a state that considers the act criminal. So, universality that is the key to identifying those crimes that are genuinely international crimes that are prosecuted by international tribunals. So, how do we understand that relatively dense argument? Well, let's assume, I've never got to talk about the North American Brown Bear Tribunal before, so this is an exciting moment for me. Um, let's assume, for example, that the United States, Canada, and Mexico conclude a treaty that deems killing an endangered brown bear an international crime, and then establishes a tribunal that has territorial jurisdiction over brown bear killing. And I've called this the North American Brown Bear Tribunal, the NAWBT. Now, that tribunal would be international because it was created by more than one state. Killing a brown bear, uh, killing a brown bear would be criminal under international law because that act has been deemed criminal by an international convention. But killing a brown bear would still not qualify as a true international crime under the direct criminalization thesis. Why? Because the international criminality of that act would still depend on and would still be limited by domestic criminalization. How is that the case? Well, although it would be illegal for a Russian to kill a brown bear on the, on the territory of the United States, Mexico, or Canada, a Russian would be completely free to kill a brown bear on Russian territory. Call this a purely non-international bear killing, as long as Russia itself had not criminalized killing brown bears. It'd be perfectly legal to kill a brown bear on Russian, on Russian territory. So, what that means is that the international criminality of killing a brown bear would be limited by domestic law. It would be limited by Russia's choice not to criminalize killing a brown bear. And it's precisely that limit on international criminality that the direct criminalization thesis rules out. The whole point of the, domestic, of the direct criminalization thesis is that these things are criminal because we don't care whether states criminalize them or not. So as set up there, this tribunal would in no way support the idea of direct criminalization. Now, let's change it a little bit. The situation would be very different if the North American Brown Bear Tribunal had universal jurisdiction over killing a brown bear. In that case, the tribunal would be able to prosecute anyone in the world who kills a brown bear anywhere in the world. Even the Russian who kills a brown bear on Russian territory, despite the fact that Russia has not criminalized that act. Now I think we would say killing a brown bear would qualify 
as an international crime under the direct criminalization thesis, because the international criminality of killing brown bears would not be limited, and more importantly, could not be limited by domestic criminalization. It wouldn't matter whether states consider killing a brown bear to be legal, because it would be illegal under international law, because the tribunal would have universal jurisdiction over the killing of brown bear. There we could say, yes, in this situation, that tribunal might support the idea of direct criminalization. And of course, this analysis raises an obvious question. Why couldn't our North American brown bear tribunal exercise universal jurisdiction over killing a brown bear? That would solve our problem. It would turn it into an international crime. Well, the answer is that states create international tribunals by pooling their domestic jurisdiction. And because they create international tribunals by pooling their domestic jurisdiction, states cannot create an international tribunal with broader jurisdiction than they themselves possess. International law certainly permits states to criminalize killing a brown bear on their territory. States are free to criminalize whatever they want on their own territory. But international law certainly does not currently permit states to exercise universal jurisdiction over killing a brown bear. So the United States, Mexico, and Canada could not create an international tribunal with universal jurisdiction over killing a brown bear. The universal jurisdiction comes first. The only truly universal international tribunal is one that is based on universal jurisdiction. And because delegation is the core of any international tribunal, unless states have universal jurisdiction over an act, they cannot create a tribunal with universal jurisdiction over that act. So, to summarize that, only one kind of international tribunal even potentially supports the idea of direct criminalization. Namely, a tribunal formed by states to prosecute acts over which they themselves exercise universal jurisdiction. If universal jurisdiction exists over a particular act, states can delegate that universal jurisdiction to an international tribunal. And that international tribunal would then itself have universal jurisdiction and would be able to prosecute that act no matter where in the world it was committed, even in a state that considered that act to be legal. Okay. If you're a lawyer and you think a lot about these things, you may have a potential objection rattling around in that capacious mind of yours, namely that my argument confuses jurisdiction with criminality. Although no court can prosecute an act that is not criminal, an act certainly can be criminal even if no court currently exists to prosecute it. So at least in theory, an act could be directly criminalized by international law itself, even if there was no international tribunal currently in existence that could have global jurisdiction over it. And I don't want to minimize that objection. If states could create an international tribunal with global reach, but simply have not, that objection would have considerable force. But to me, it seems metaphysical, the international criminal law version of a tree falling in the forest, to consider an act directly criminalized by international law, even if states are not capable of creating an international tribunal that could prosecute it no matter where in the world it was committed. On the contrary, I would say that the impossibility of a genuinely universal international tribunal would serve as powerful evidence against the idea of direct criminalization because it would foreground 
the dependence of international criminalization on domestic criminalization. And again, it's precisely that dependence that the direct criminalization theory thesis denies or rejects. So, in short, an international tribunal must be based on universal jurisdiction for its practice to even potentially count as evidence in favor of the direct criminalization thesis. So, thus understood, the actually existing international tribunals provide no support, or almost no support, for the customary status of direct criminalization. Here's my little list. The Special Tribunal for Lebanon, the Special Court for Sierra Leone, and the Yugoslav Tribunal, they're all based solely on territorial jurisdiction. The Rwanda Tribunal, the Cambodia Tribunal, and the ICC, they're based on territorial and active nationality jurisdiction. In fact, only one international tribunal has ever exercised universal jurisdiction, and that's the Special Panels for Serious Crimes in East Timor, which were created by the UN in the year 2000. Now, it's important to note, I think, that these jurisdictional limits also doom the attempt of Sima and Paulus to defend direct criminalization on the ground that few states have ever challenged the legitimacy of international tribunals. Basically, an argument from acquiescence. We've created these tribunals, nobody seems to have a problem with them, so of course, certain acts are directly criminalized by international law. Now, there's no question that in the right circumstances, inaction, or acquiescence, silence, can count as state practice, or opinio iuris. But with regard to direct criminalization, states' failure to protest the existence of international tribunals doesn't qualify as either state practice or opinio iuris. Most importantly, as I've just noted, uh, with the exception of the special panels for serious crimes, which the UN promptly forgot, this is the only tribunal that has ever exercised universal jurisdiction over crimes. So states' acquiescence to things like the, the Rwanda Tribunal, the Yugoslav Tribunal, the Special Court for Sierra Leone, it certainly doesn't help establish direct criminalization because those tribunals have a jurisdiction that itself is inconsistent with the notion of direct criminalization. Moreover, and I know this is getting very complicated, even if direct criminalization somehow was the basis for all of these international tribunals, the fact that they focus on specific conflicts involving very limited numbers of states would doom any attempt to view state silence in the face of them as acquiescence to a general principle that says these international crimes are directly criminalized by international law itself. Rob Cryer's noticed, as noted, states are much more willing to give strong jurisdictional uh, authority or strong jurisdictional power to the so-called safe tribunals, tribunals that only apply to other states. They're not willing to give the same powers to the unsafe tribunals, tribunals whose rules might actually apply to them. So the creation of things like the Yugoslav Tribunal and the Rwanda Tribunal and the Special Court for Sierra Leone, they hardly called for some reaction from other states. These were not tribunals that in any way threatened 190 of 196 states in the world. And it's even more revealing that when the international community decided to create the International Criminal Court, which at least in theory could have a global jurisdiction, states pointedly refused to grant it universal jurisdiction. They talked about it. There were some states who wanted to grant universal jurisdiction to the ICC, but other states had nothing, wanted nothing to do with that idea. Again, largely because it could be used 
against them. So, doesn't even the possibility of the international community creating an international tribunal with universal jurisdiction over the core international crimes, doesn't that, just the mere possibility, support the idea of direct criminalization? After all, there is no legal reason why the ICC could not have been based on universal jurisdiction. They talked about it, thought about it, and ultimately rejected it, but not because they said it was legally impossible, because it was not politically palatable. The problem with this argument is that it presumes the existence of universal jurisdiction itself provides support for direct criminalization. And that's simply not the case. Although universal jurisdiction clearly establishes that an act is universally criminal under international law, it does not, necessar not necessarily establish that an act is directly criminalized by international law. The latter is true only if universal jurisdiction is a consequence of an act being directly criminalized by international law. Now, a number of scholars have specifically argued that. A number of scholars have said that if an act is directly criminalized by international law, states are entitled to exercise universal jurisdiction over it. So, for example, my friend Klaus Kress argues that the, quote, true test for whether universal jurisdiction exists is, quote, whether states agree to the internationalization of the criminal law rule and create a crime under international law. Now, this connection raises an important question. What is the positivist basis for the idea that universal jurisdiction is a consequence of direct criminalization? What's the positivist basis for that idea? Now, we can imagine three potential sources. We can imagine three possible sources, but none of them are convincing. So, we could imagine a law-making treaty with near-universal ratification that says a particular act is directly criminalized by international law, and thus it permits universal jurisdiction by states. But there is no such treaty. Only one multilateral treaty has ever affirmed direct criminalization, and that's the Statute of Limitations Convention that probably most of the people in this room have never even heard of. And that treaty says nothing at all about universal jurisdiction. Even more importantly, all of the treaties that do make use of universal jurisdiction, the Geneva Conventions, the Apartheid Convention, these are all suppression conventions. They don't affirm direct criminalization. They affirm national obligations to domestically criminalize. So, that doesn't help us establish that universal jurisdiction is a consequence of direct criminalization. Number two, we could think of a universally, sorry, a unanimously adopted General Assembly resolution that affirmed that universal jurisdiction is a consequence of direct criminalization. No reason why states couldn't have such a resolution, but no such resolution concerning the core international crimes even mentions universal jurisdiction. It doesn't even mention it. Finally, perhaps most promisingly in theory, states could agree with Klaus Kress and simply assert, opinion yours, they could simply assert that their right to use universal jurisdiction flows from international law's direct criminalization of certain acts. And there is one state of 196 in the world who has said that, and that state is South Africa. Now, the South Africa's own constitutional court seems to disagree with that, but at least we can look at the South African government and say, yep. Yeah, there's one state that says universal jurisdiction is a consequence of direct criminalization. But 
They're the only one. And as I'll discuss in a moment, there are 59 other states that use universal jurisdiction in ways that are completely inconsistent with the idea that certain acts are directly criminalized by international law, and thus that universal jurisdiction is a consequence of direct criminalization. So from a positivist perspective then, state practice and opinio juris simply provide no support for the idea that universal jurisdiction is a consequence of direct criminalization. That connection seems to be little more than an article of faith, a naturalist idea that is not capable of disconfirmation. So that's all I want to say about the direct criminalization thesis. In the few minutes that I have left to talk, I want to talk about the national criminalization thesis, my thesis. Because rejecting the direct criminalization thesis does not require us to abandon the idea that international crimes are universally criminal, nor does it mean that we have to reject the possibility of a positivist definition of an international crime. It simply means that we must accept a very different definition, namely that an international crime is an act that all states are in the world are obligated by international law to criminalize. I spend most of the second half of my article arguing that the national criminalization thesis has a much stronger positivist foundation than the direct criminalization thesis. And again, I don't want to bore you with all of the aspects of that argument. Let me just turn briefly back to universal jurisdiction and the practice of international tribunals. So as we've seen, there is a necessary connection between universal jurisdiction and the idea of universal criminality. Universal jurisdiction is the primary international law manifestation of the idea that certain acts are universally criminal, and it's precisely the possibility of delegating universal jurisdiction to an international tribunal that makes it possible, at least in theory, if not in practice, for states to create an international tribunal that could prosecute certain acts no matter where in the world they are committed. But we've also seen that there's no positivist basis for the idea that universal jurisdiction results from direct criminalization. And there's a reason for that. The reason is that universal jurisdiction actually supports the national criminalization thesis and not the direct criminalization thesis. More specifically, state practice and opinio juris indicate that universal jurisdiction exists over any act that international law obligates all states to criminalize. Why? Because it is precisely a state's failure to prosecute an international crime that is committed on its territory that justifies other states disregarding traditional limits on extraterritorial jurisdiction. And there are three data points, I think, that are particularly salient here. First, when states actually draft a treaty that requires universal jurisdiction over a particular act, they always require domestic criminalization of that act as well. That is true of the Geneva Conventions. It is true of the Apartheid Convention. And it is true for suppression conventions generally, from the 1970 hijacking convention to the 1997 terrorist bombing convention. Second, 57 states provide for universal jurisdiction over an international crime only when they are formally required to do so by a treaty. And here is the nice long list of the 57 states that only use universal jurisdiction when they were required to by a treaty. That practice is inconsistent with the idea essential to the direct criminalization thesis, that universal jurisdiction is a consequence of certain acts being directly criminalized by international law. If that idea were true, we would expect a significant number of states to adopt universal jurisdiction for core international crimes, even in the absence of a conventional obligation to do so. 
And really, you're talking about crimes against humanity, because that's the main crime for which there is no convention. But they don't. States don't make use of universal jurisdiction when they're not required to do so by a treaty. Third, and this is really the most important one, 59 states explicitly condition the use of universal jurisdiction on the territorial state being either unwilling or unable to prosecute an international crime. And they fall into two different categories. 28 of those states require an international crime to actually be criminal in the territorial state. That's a double criminality requirement, much like the one that you commonly see in extradition treaties. The other 31 states don't require double criminality. They're also willing to exercise universal jurisdiction when the territorial state is unable to prosecute an act because it has failed to incorporate the relevant international crime into its penal code. So the key here is that the practice of states in both of these categories explicitly supports the national criminalization thesis. All 59 states view universal jurisdiction as a subsidiary form of jurisdiction, one that is, can be used only when a state violates an international obligation <coughs> to effectively prosecute an international crime committed on its territory. All 59 of those states thus view universal jurisdiction as dependent upon a pre-existing obligation to criminalize. A state cannot have an international obligation to effectively prosecute an international crime if it's not obligated to domestically criminalize that act in the first place. In other words, as El Salvador's statement in the Sixth Committee explicitly affirms, an obligation to criminalize is inherent in the obligation to prosecute. This statement kind of sums up my argument. Now, it's also worth noting that the idea that universal jurisdiction is a subsidiary form of jurisdiction, available only when the territorial state has failed to criminalize or prosecute international crime, has a very long pedigree. Two judgments that are judge, excuse me, two judgments that are routinely cited as the earliest examples of court affirming universal jurisdiction, and these are the Nuremberg Military Tribunal's judgments in the hostage and Einsatzgruppen cases, each explicitly conditioned universal jurisdiction on the failure of the territorial state to adequately address the commission of an international crime. So in Einsatzgruppen, for example, here is what the tribunal said. And again, this is a very famous statement in the history of international criminal law. Again, I won't read it to you. But if you look at international jurisprudence again and again and again, you see universal jurisdiction being emphasized as a subsidiary form, as only available when the territorial state fails to live up to its own international obligations. And I could have cited a very recent decision by the Constitutional Court in South Africa in the Zimbabwe torture docket case where they specifically affirm that universal jurisdiction is only a subsidiary form and requires the unwillingness or inability of the territorial state to investigate and prosecute. And then just finally, um, although it's not strictly relevant from a positivist perspective, it's worth noting that literally all of the philosophic defenses of universal jurisdiction that are out there, from Vattel onward, all of them explain the permissibility of universal jurisdiction by invoking the failure of the territorial state to address the commission of an international crime. And so here's just one very long quote from one of the leading defenses by Wynne Chatley 
of why universal jurisdiction exists, why there are exceptions to the general extraterritorial limitations on universal jurisdiction. So, to conclude, the existence of universal jurisdiction supports the national criminalization thesis, not the direct criminalization thesis. And if that's true, the possibility of states delegating their universal jurisdiction to an international tribunal, thereby creating an international tribunal that can prosecute international crimes no matter where in the world they are committed, supports the national criminalization thesis as well. I'm not telling anyone that they can't believe in direct criminalization. If they like the statements in the textbooks, they're perfectly free to remain committed to it. What I'm saying is you can't be a good positivist and believe the direct criminalization thesis. If you want to adopt a naturalist frame, there's no shame in that, but you need to come out of the closet and admit it. If you want to call yourself a positivist and you want to build international criminal law on generally the same foundations that we have now, I think you are required to go the route that Grotius and George Schwarzenberger and the much less important Heller have defended the national criminalization thesis. Thank you. <laughs>